Hello, Strange Stories UK here again. This is Series 3, Episode 34, The Hess Enigma Part 2. I'm assuming that the listener has heard Part 1 of this story, so I'm getting right into the story of the Hess flight at around the point that Part 1 finished. After Hess had bowed out over Scotland on the night of the 10th of May 1941, he was captured by the Home Guard, giving his name as Hauptmann Alfred Horn, which was an agreed name that he was to give if captured. Hess, or Horn, let's call him Horn for the time being, asked to see the Duke of Hamilton, who had been in the control room at RAF Turnhouse, commanding all RAF fighter defences in southern Scotland, where Hess's Messerschmitt BF-110 had crossed the Northumberland coast. Hamilton went to go and meet with Horn, but what has never been explained is why he agreed at no notice to see a pilot who was calling himself Alfred Horn, so clearly Hamilton was expecting Hess to arrive. And secondly, what was Hamilton doing for the five lost hours between leaving RAF Turnhouse and arriving at Maryhill Barracks at Paisley, where Horn was being held? Well, we can guess. We can guess that he was asking for advice regarding what he should do. He was asking advice from the security services who were either representing Churchill's government or the appeasers trying to organise a peace deal with the Nazis, or representatives of both groups. On reaching Paisley and meeting up with the pilot captured, Horn, Hamilton asked everyone to leave the room at Horn's request while they spoke in private. This was a breach of every regulation dealing with captured prisoners of war. According to Hamilton's report of this private meeting, he wasn't sure he was talking to, The prisoner, he claimed, he had no recollection of ever seeing before, which is probably true, and identifying himself as Rudolf Hess. He asked Hamilton to get together leading members of those wanting to reach an agreement with Germany to talk things over with a view to making peace proposals, and also to contact King George VI to arrange that Hess be treated as a negotiator approaching under a flag of truce. Horn, or Hess, also outlined to Hamilton the German peace terms. After the meeting, Hamilton flew to see Churchill. Hess was taken 24 miles northeast to Dryman Military Hospital, Buchanan Castle, Loch Lomond, to treat his injuries. After Hamilton's meeting with Churchill, it was agreed that Hamilton would return to Scotland with a diplomat, Ivan Kirkpatrick, a clever spook who had met all the senior Nazis while in Berlin during the 1930s so that a positive identification could take place. This was on the 13th of May, and Kirkpatrick quickly identified Hess. By the next day when they met again with the Duke of Hamilton, the pilot admitting to being again Rudolf Hess, Hitler's deputy, which was embarrassing to the Duke, Duke of Hamilton, and to the British government. Things looked suspicious that the Duke of Hamilton and the British government were part of a pro-Nazi peace plot. MI6 had in 1941 intercepted letters to the Duke of Hamilton sent from Berlin via Lisbon. MI6 had exonerated the Duke of being implicated in peace plotting, but we can't really trust what they're saying or whose interests they were working for. 
Hess gave a very basic outline of the terms Germany would accept for a peace settlement, main points being that the British Empire would remain intact, the European continent would be controlled by Germany, and Germany would have its colonies returned that were taken after World War I. So a good deal for Britain, considering the plight that they were in, if the Germans could be trusted to keep it, and the Nazis did not have a good record of keeping their word. Cookpatrick called Sir Anthony Eden, Churchill's number two basically, confirming that it was Hess and outlined the peace terms. And he noted that Hess wouldn't talk freely with anyone he thought associated with the Churchill government. However, Cookpatrick thought that if he could be put in touch with perhaps some member of the Conservative Party who would give Hess the impression that he was tempted by the idea of getting rid of Churchill and he wanted peace terms, that it might be that Hess would open up freely. Cookpatrick's confirmation seems to have been made on the same morning that reports began appearing in the UK newspapers about Hess's arrival. On the 13th of May, Hess was brought under armed guard to a large country house near RAF Turnhouse, possibly Craigie Hall House, the British Army headquarters in Scotland. Reports indicate that Hess had a meeting with the Duke of Kent. This probably would not have been known or sanctioned by Churchill or his government. It may have been that the Duke of Kent was asking about proposals about Poland, who he had an interest in uh, regarding the peace treaty, and would the Duke be offered the crown of Poland as been discussed with the Nazi hierarchy in the past. It seemed that the royal family could do virtually what they wanted without being bound by the same rules and regulations as everybody else. The following day, the 14th of May, there was a search by the police and the army for the documents in the vicinity where Hess landed, presumably the papers that Hess had lost, which included the draft terms of the peace treaty. These were located near a wee burn, but none of these documents, letters or photostats listing the peace treaty terms can be found in any official files today. Well, in any files open to uh, public e examination. A day or two later, there was a letter intercepted. It was sent to an RAF intelligence official. It was a photostat of the peace proposals, part of those lost by Hess, that he had brought with him to distribute to those supporting his peace mission. The interception of the letter implies that all the post in the area where Hess landed was being intercepted and scrutinised in the days after he arrived. This indicated that the authorities were anxious that the correspondence lost by Hess and found by any third parties would not reach the public domain. Hess and Kirkpatrick spoke again on the 15th of May. Hess requesting that two German internees being held in the UK be made available to him to help him in peace negotiations, to interpret and take minutes of the meetings. This suggesting that they, he had been told by Kirkpatrick that some papers had indeed been found and he assumed, or Hess assumed, that talks would now commence. Hess named both the assistants and gave their internment numbers. It turned out that both had been moved from Heighton near Liverpool to close to Dungavon on the 8th of May, just prior to Hess's arrival. 
This suggests that strings were being pulled by the anti-Churchill faction to try to facilitate peace negotiations by those that knew that Hess was coming. However, instead of negotiations, Hess travelled on the 16th of May by train from Glasgow to, um, to London, where he was held at the Tower of London. He was the last prisoner to be locked up at the Tower. And from there he went to a country house near Aldershot on the 20th of May. Hess would spend the rest of his life locked up. Cookpatrick produced a report on his dealings with Hess, which was circulated to Churchill, Eden, Attlee and Beaverbrook, all of whom had no intention of doing any deals with the Nazis, and they were all firmly in the Churchill camp. Part of the delay in reacting to the Hess flight can be explained by Hamilton's inability to recognise Hess, and that led to a delay of 48 hours before it was established that it was Hess who had arrived, and he was trying to discuss peace terms. In the days and weeks that followed, little was said officially about the episode, and with Hess securely in custody, and no documents substantiating the peace proposals in the public domain, there was little that any opposition to Churchill could do. As the government had not announced any peace proposals, the appeasers could not ask for them to be accepted. If they had insisted that there were peace proposals from the Nazis, then it would implicate them knowing about the Hess flight and Hess's intentions. The war continued to go badly for Britain. An attempt to establish a bridgehead in Crete ended in defeat on the 1st of June 1941, with 23,000 UK troops killed or captured, and 12 ships sunk, which, if there was knowledge of a peace plan, the Crete episode would have increased support for it. The government maintained its silence about Hess until the 3rd of June. On that day, Beaverbrook, with Churchill's agreement, visited Maisky, the Soviet ambassador in London, for dinner. Beaverbrook discussed the Hess flight and told Maisky of the peace terms, which included the removal of Churchill from power. Beaverbrook argued that the Hess Hitler were trying to negotiate with the local Quislings and traitors, then uh, the British government was not involved in any peace deals. When Maisky reported back to Stalin about his meeting with Beaverbrook, Stalin discussed it with Nikita Khrushchev. They discussed what had been behind the Hess flight. Stalin asked Khrushchev to give his view, and when Khrushchev suggested that the flight had been part of a, an attempted deal between the German Nazis and the secret British Peace Troop Party, Stalin agreed. Stalin would talk Hitler about this at a 1943 dinner in Moscow, suggesting that the British Prime Minister had known about the Hess flight before it happened. Churchill said through his interpreter, When I make a statement of facts within my knowledge, I expect it to be accepted. Stalin grinned and said, There are lots of things that happen here in Russia that which my secret police does not necessarily tell me about. Hitler was reported to be very upset by the Hess flight, having a temper tantrum in front of others, although it is generally thought that Hitler had known about the flight. It was part of Hitler's leadership style that he would let people use their own initiative rather than directly get involved himself. If something worked out well, he'll take the credit. If not, he would rage against the idea. 
Hess was interviewed by Lord Simon, who was sympathetic to a peace deal with Germany. And Lord Simon was one of those uh, so-called guilty men. Hess repeated the peace terms during their meeting. Simon reported back to Churchill that Hess had come across on his own initiative and Hitler was not involved, which is probably not true. Hitler would have been concerned that his allies would think that the Hess flight was an attempt by Hitler to secretly open peace talks with the British behind their backs. Hitler ordered that the German media should portray Hess as someone who had lost his senses, probably due to strain and injuries he had received during World War I. This caused consternation amongst the high, Nazi high command, as it implied that a mentally ill person had been the deputy leader of the Third Reich. Hitler ordered that Hess be shot if he returned to Germany, and there was a propaganda campaign against Hess that allowed Hitler to wash his hands of him, as he was no longer useful. Germany would invade the USSR during June the 22nd, 1941, after which demands for a peace deal with Britain would fall away, and matters would be switched on how best to fight alongside the Soviet Union against Germany. Stalin and the USSR were still suspicious about the Hess flight. It played on Stalin's mind, and in 1942 he formally requested clarification of the matter, particularly whether the UK had been told of the German attack on the Russia before it occurred, Operation Barbarossa. The British government replied that they did not know about the attack. Hess was apparently unaware of the Russian invasion. In the peace proposals, it was stated that Germany's demands on Russia would either be satisfied by negotiation or war. Whether Stalin believed the official UK explanation is unknown. There are signs that he didn't. But during 1942, Stalin was also involved in peace treaty talks with the Nazis, and he certainly did not share what was being discussed with the Allies. There was a strong element of hypocrisy on the Soviet side, as Stalin was hoping that the French, the British and the Germans, the Western capitalists, would bleed themselves to death fighting during 1940. This would leave the USSR to exploit matters afterwards. Another factor that Stalin failed to understand is that Churchill did not have the absolute power that Stalin enjoyed. Churchill had to answer to Parliament and be forced to resign if he was not seen to be doing the right actions. The Russians and the Germans were totalitarian states, and the leadership could do pretty much as it wanted without restraint. In Britain there was a spectrum of opinion, and there was often no definite correct answer to a problem. Also, it should be remembered that Britain had warned Stalin about Nazis seemingly making preparations to attack the USSR. Detailed intelligence information was angrily rejected by Stalin, who suspected a trick by the British. The German ambassador in Moscow, who was anti-Nazi, later killed by the uh, SS, had tried to warn Stalin of the German plans to invade, but Stalin thought that it was more disinformation. There was Stalin's appeasement of Hitler. He had supplied the Nazis with supplies, circumventing the British blockade and helping Nazis consolidate their hold on Western Europe. Stalin was also probably playing for time, building up his defences against the German attack, 
that he must have known would be coming at some time in the future. But he probably didn't think in the near future, as the Germans had just overrun several countries and were still fighting the United Kingdom. Surely he thought that the Nazis had enough to occupy with themselves within 1941, which would give the USSR time to build up their armed forces. An interesting side note regarding events of May 1941. In the days of Gorbachev's perestroika, in the mid-1980s, historians were searching the archives to try to discover unknown truths regarding subjects regarding World War II, and in particular the Hess flight. The author John Costello was looking into the KGB archives and was backed by a big budget from his publisher. He was working with a former KGB colonel, Oleg Sarov. Costello was working on the thesis that the British had plotted to lure Hitler into attacking Russia. The book sold well in the USA under the subtitle The Secret Story of the Hess Peace Initiative and British Effects to a Striker Deal with Hitler. Costello was 52 years old when four years later he was found dead in his airline seat as he flew home to Miami from London. Shellfish poisoning was suggested but the toxicology tests were inconclusive. Also searching the Soviet files was a Dr. Matthias Ull, a German national working at the Moscow University. He found a 28-page notebook said to have been written by Hesse's adjunct Karl-Heinz Pinch. When Pinch was held by the Russians after the war, Pinch was the man who reported to Hitler that the Hess flight had failed. The notebook was found in the KGB records that, unlike the British wartime records, had not be, uh, were opened for public examination. It seems that uh, Bitch, uh, Pinch had been arrested at the Birchtesgarden and interrogated in Berlin by the Gestapo, then jailed by the SS. Then he was sent to the Russian front in 1944. He was captured by the Russians and betrayed to the NKVD, Russian secret police, by a fellow German prisoner. In the Lubankia prison in Moscow, the NKVD broke all his fingers to make him talk. His words in the 1948 notebook, translated for the attention of Stalin, say that Hitler calmly listened to his report and dismissed him without any comment. The notebook says that Hess flew by prior arrangement with the English to use all means at his disposal to achieve, if not a German military alliance with England, that should be Britain, against Russia, at least the neutralisation of Britain. But there are doubts over the notebook. Some phrases are thought to have been suggested by the Russian torturers. For example, one of the phrases translates to, The facts I am reporting confirm that England, by promoting Hitler's aggressive pacts against the Soviet Russia, acted in accordance with its old principle of using foreign hands to remove the chestnuts from the fire. Pinch was interviewed several times by James Lisa, the war journalist and author who specialised in World War II. Lisa was working on a book about the Hess flight. Pinch said nothing about Hitler being involved in the Hess mission. 
and it seems that Pinch had no real inside information about the Hess flight. But it seems that anybody associated with Hess in Nazi Germany uh, after, after he took his flight were treated quite badly. American media reported that Churchill discussed the Hess proposals with Roosevelt, the American president, who agreed that peace proposals should be ignored and Hess treated publicly as mad. Both points are plausible. Churchill shared a lot with Roosevelt, using him as a sounding board. So Hess was treated by the Allies as if he was a delusional, the official line being that Hess deluded himself into thinking he could broker a peace deal and thought he could secure the the peace deal similar to that Chamberlain had thought he had gained when he flew to Munich before the war had started. Among the theories regarding the Hess flight, there is a suggestion that Hess was lured to the UK by the security services to smoke out the UK collaborators and fifth columnists. However, there doesn't seem much evidence of this, and there was no real action taken against those who were exposed. Nothing like what happened to Mosley and his supporters in the year before, May 1940, when they passed the Emergency Powers Act. Leaving aside whether Hess was deluded in the calculations he made before arriving in the UK, if the intelligence services were not involved, and it wasn't a move by Churchill to proactively sue for peace, then the only explanation that can we can think is what Boroness told Burkhardt in Geneva in January 1941, and what Burkhardt relayed to Van Hassel in Haushofer. This being that there was a section of the United Kingdom political class with the discreet backing of the royal family who wanted to explore peace talks. They wanted to explore these talks outside of government. The peace proposals that Boroness took to Switzerland were almost identical to those proposed by Hess. There were many who campaigned for the peace deal with Germany after the war was declared. Kenneth de Corsi actively campaigned for a compromised peace with Germany after the outbreak of war so that Hitler could concentrate on fighting the communist threat of the USSR. De Corsi worked closely with the head of the wartime MI6, Stuart Menzies, who was also of the opinion that the USSR was the greater threat. And it seems very likely these two were involved in the Hess plot, but for what reason it's difficult to gauge. There were papers kept at the Hoover Institute at the University of California that had been donated by de Corsi after the war. The papers were about World War II, and in particular files regarding the possibility of negotiated peace, 1939-40, and also files regarding subversive activities of Soviet sympathisers in Great Britain, 1946-63. So these files went missing, presumed stolen, in the 1980s. De Corsi claimed that the British agents from MMR6 stole the files with the assistance of the FBI. Also a file marked most secret regarding Hess had been stolen from the Foreign Office in London at around the same time. It was thought that the file was taken by the head of MI6, Morris Oldfield, who was about to retire, as he thought that the file would be destroyed, or at least weeded, out of secrets, 
before it was made available to historians, possibly after 85 years, in 2017. The Hess file ended up being auctioned at Alexandra Historical Auctions, Maryland, America, in 2013. It was entered by an unnamed European individual. This could have been the Dutch documentary producer, film producer, Carol Gilles, who was given the file while filming a documentary on the Hess affair. The file had originally passed to a Dr. Hugh Thomas, who wrote books arguing that it was a Rudolf Hess double being held in the Spandu prison after the war. Dr. Hugh Thomas first met Morris Oldfield, the head of MI6, when he was serving as a surgeon in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, and they'd kept in touch. After Thomas wrote his book, Oldfield passed on the stolen Hess file to him, saying that the Hess episode had always puzzled him, and he asked him to try to make sense of the file. Thomas approached the BBC with an idea of making a documentary, but there was no interest shown, and this is probably when the file was passed on to others to make use of it in some kind of documentary. In the Hess file, there were 14 documents that were written by Hess, including a letter sent by Hess to King George VI in 1942, asking for the appointment of a commission to investigate his captivity, uh, his treatment in captivity. Sorry. Another document was drawn up by Hess after his meeting in May 1941 with the Duke of Hamilton, the Scottish aristocrat who he hoped would act as an intermediary. Hess laid out what he saw was the desperation of the British position in the war. The British can't continue the war without coming to terms with Germany. By my coming to England, the British government can now declare that they are now able to have talks. Hugh Thomas had twice been refused permission under the Official Secrets Act to reveal the contents of letters from Lord Willingdon, who was involved in the police plots, to the Prime Minister of Canada. Mackenzie King during the war. It was information from this letter that was thought to have leaked to Churchill tipping him off regarding the Hess flight. Lord Wigram, the King's equerry, was told by Lord Willingdon that the King was most concerned about a situation developing which could lead to civil war in Britain. The King seemed concerned that the civil war would break out if Churchill refused to be removed from power, refusing a peace deal with Germany. It has been suggested that Churchill's approval ratings by the British people during World War II never fell but below 70%. Churchill was much more popular with the public than with members of Parliament, and so it was clear that if there was going to be a negotiated peace with Germany, Churchill would have to be forced out of government first. And it's difficult to ascertain who the British security services were actually working for, or if there were different sections law for different ideals. Dancy was head of uh, deputy head of MI6 during 1940. Dancy had become friends with his fellow subaltern, Winston Churchill, during the Boer War. He later joined the British Security Services, working abroad as a diplomat, but returned to the UK to set up a parallel network of secret intelligence agents to cover areas of interest. Before World War II, this would have been Germany and Italy mainly. They used the code name Z and avoided the use of wireless. They were supposed to work in conjunction with a contact to MI6. Stuart 
Menzies, the head of MI6. Stuart Menzies had also become friends with Churchill during World War I and worked closely with him during World War II, which indicates that Dancy and Menzies were both working in Churchill's best interests. Hess was held in the UK during the war. As said, he became the last prisoner to be held at the Tower of London. And he was also held at an army base at Mitchett Place in Surrey. And then at Main Diff Court Hospital during June 1942. Churchill ordered that Hess was not allowed the use of newspapers or the radio and was allowed to write just one letter a month. But he was allowed to keep a journal. Psychiatrists who treated Hess during this period noted that he was not insane, but he was mentally unstable. He had tendencies towards hypochondria and paranoia. Hess was said not to have had any regrets about any of his actions after joining the Nazi party. If Hess had been judged mentally ill, he could have been repatriated under the terms of the Geneva Convention. Hess was also complaining about loss of memory. Hess made a couple of suicide attempts at Mitchett Place, but only succeeded in breaking his leg after jumping from a staircase. At the end of the war, Hess was facing trial as a war criminal at the Nuremberg Trials that started in October 1945. During the trials, Hess claimed amnesia. Hess's barrister pointed out that Hess had tried to act as a peacemaker during the war. Hess was found not guilty of any war crimes, but guilty for crimes against peace and a conspiracy to commit crimes. He received a life sentence to be sent at the Allied military prison at Spando in Berlin. Spando prison being used as a prison for opponents of Hitler after the Nazis came to power. The many executions that took place there gave an expression, the Spando ballet, as the body struggles and kicks while being hung. At Spando, the Allies took turns the Allies took turns into guiding the prisoner for a month at a time. It was a strict regime at first, especially under the Russians. The guards were not allowed to even have eye contact with the prisoners, but it became less strict over time. Prisoners were ordered to rise at uh, six o'clock in the morning, wash, clean their cells, and then the corridor, and then eat breakfast together, stay in the garden until lunchtime, or well, weather, weather permitting, then they would have a post-lunch rest in their cells and then return to the garden. Supper followed at uh, five o'clock in the afternoon, after which the prisoners were returned to their cells. Lights out at ten o'clock. This routine hardly ever changed over the years. Illicit lines of communication with the outside world were opened for the inmates by sympathetic staff. This allowed, for example, Albert Sphere to write his best-selling book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, by smuggling out copy. Hess avoided any type of work that he considered below his dignity, and he was the only one not to attend shared activities. Hess was not popular with his so-called Spando Seven, the Nazi leaders imprisoned with him. Hess was frequently moved for security reasons. When he was taken to the British military hospital not far from the prison, the entire second floor of the hospital was cordoned off for him, and he was always remained under heavy guard. Hess did not allow any members of his family to visit him for almost 25 years. 
Eventually, Hess was the only prisoner at Spando. His lawyers had appealed for his release, but a veto by the USSR prevented this. Doubts about the identity of Hess were first expressed in 1945 by the US spymaster Alan Dulles. He suspected that the British intelligence had produced a doppelganger for Hess at his war criminal trial. This was suspected after US Army doctors could not find scars from a rifle bullet suffered during World War I. The counter-argument being that he was shot by a small full metal jacket round that left a very small entry wound that had healed after 28 years and was not noticeable on Hess's Hussite body. Hugh Thomas, the army surgeon who published books, also argued that the person in Spando prison was not Rudolf Hess, but a double substituted by British intelligence. This is not as strange as it first seems. Doubles were used during World War II by the British. Field Marshal Montgomery and Churchill had doubles during the war, and modern-day politicians are also known to have used doubles. The story is that a double of Hess was substituted by the SS after they murdered Hess. I suppose that the motivation after the Hess flight, uh, that it would have put the British government on the wrong foot and tried to cause divisions in the UK because German spies would have reported that there was the mood for peace talks. So the Germans would have thought that it was worth an idea to send across a double of Hess, I suppose. There are several other books and many articles questioning if the person in Spando was actually Hess. These all involve old war wounds, autopsy reports, aged blood samples, extracted teeth, the personality of the prisoner, testimonies of those looking after him in prison and so on. Recently a DNA test is supposed to have confirmed with 99% certainty that it was Hess. But then it was argued that the DNA samples were flawed and there are still doubts as to whether it was Hess. And cover-ups, of course, complicated this picture. I don't want to go into all the arguments here. Uh, for what it's worth, after reading the accounts, I'm of the opinion that it was Rudolf Hess in Spando. He was the genuine article. But the discussion over his identity is interesting. Hess was buried in a small town, Wenzendal, one of the few top Nazis with a public accessibly, uh, accessible grave. But on the anniversary of his death, neo-Nazis made a pilgrimage to the town to pay tribute, which triggered counter-protests. So in 2011, the grave was taken down and destroyed, and his remains were cremated and buried at sea. So we can't be totally sure now regarding his DNA. When Hess died, the British closed off Spando prison and supposedly pulverised the building to dust. They didn't want anybody to recover any old bricks from the prison to have as a memorial or a keepsake. The regime at Spando was very strict in not allowing people entry. The site of Spando prison became a shopping centre for British forces stationed in Germany, where it was colloquially known as Hesco's. Hess was found dead in the summer house in the prison garden on the afternoon of the 17th of August 1987. Conspiracy theorists concluded that the prisoner in Spando had been murdered. The death came conveniently just as the President Gorbachev 
Hess's Priestroika government was about to lift a Soviet ban on prisoner number seven, as Hess was known, to give him a humanitarian release. Four days after the reported suicide of the last war crimes prisoner of Spando, Professor Wolfgang Svan carried out a second autopsy on the body of prisoner number seven at the Forensic Medicine Institute of Munich University. Professor Svan reported that a strangulation mark could be identified and the mark on the throat obviously was not located above the larynx. This was more indicative of a cause of throttling rather than of hanging. There was bruising in the the deeper neck tissues and bruising along the top of the head. Uh, Again, features of throttling or strangulation. The findings were not thought to have been consistent by so-called typical hanging. Although it wasn't typical hanging, it was rather a strange hanging. But anyway, this gave birth to a new conspiracy. Was, Was Hess murdered? It was being claimed that the British had relied on Soviet intransigence to blame for keeping Hess locked up. And in 1987, the Soviets under Gorbachev had started their intention to release Hess, and they were next in line to take over the prison guard duties. It was claimed that Hess would be able to tell the world the truth about his negotiations with the British, and the truth could seriously damage the image of Britain. It was claimed that an old man who couldn't tie his own shoelaces due to arthritis or raise his arms above his head, according to his nurse, tied a noose and hanged himself. The British intelligence services were accused of organising the murder, but it doesn't make sense. If the British wanted him dead, why would they wait 40-odd years after he landed in Scotland? Wouldn't it have been more likely that he would have been interrogated and then it was said that he died of his injuries when he crashed his plane in 1941? On the 28th of February 1989, BBC Newsnight screened a 30-minute TV report in which both Professor Svan and the prison nurse, Abdullah Malour, told the reporter, Alenka Frankiel, that they suspected the prisoner had been murdered. It was also pointed out by many people, including the German Chancellor, Helmut Kohl, that the British have still not released documents on the Rudolf Hess. But that probably just reflects what a secretive society the UK has always been. On a slightly different note, the travels of Anthony Blunt across Germany in 1945 also have caused comment. Officially, Anthony Blunt, the Soviet spy, was sent with the Royal Archivist Sir Owen Mooreshead to recover correspondence held at Schloss Friedrichshof between Queen Victoria and her daughter. Adelaide, Empress of Prussia. About 4,000 letters were involved, all written pre-1900. It was claimed that it was important to retrieve these letters as Victoria was critical of German manners and attitudes, and it was feared that if American writers came across them, then they could have been sensationalised in a book and putting the royal family in a poor light. Yes, this excuse was considered very weak and not really believed. Blunt made three more trips to other locations over the following 18 months, mainly to recover royal treasures which the Crown did not have an automatic right to. On one trip he returned with a 12th century illuminated manuscript and the diamond crown of Queen Charlotte, the wife of King George III. 
The senior American officers at Fleet Class Half Castle, Kathleen Nash and Jack Durant, were later arrested for looting and put on trial. But it seemed that Blunt, acting for the royal family, had also acted in a similar way. Blunt's trip was thought also to retrieve letters for, from the Duke of Windsor to Philip Landgrieve of Hesse, the owner of Friedrichshof, in which the Duke knowingly revealed Allied secrets to Hitler. This is quite well known, and variants of this story have been published by several authors. So Blunt, the Soviet spy, in return for a full confession, the British government agreed to keep his spying career an official secret for 15 years and grant him full immunity from prosecution. But this was on the, un on the understanding that Blunt kept quiet about his other activities and his work for the royal family. After Blunt had been revealed as a Soviet agent, his MI5 interrogator, Peter Wright, states that he was told in 1964 by Michael Adeen, the private secretary to Queen Elizabeth II, he was told, From time to time you may find Blunt referring to assignment he undertook on behalf of the palace, a visit to Germany at the end of the war. Please do not pursue this matter. One suspects that any compromising documents written to by or to or from or even mentioning the royal family and dating from this period would have long been destroyed, along with any other papers recovered from the site of Hesse's landing. Boronus, Tancred Boronus, could have been described as the Antony Blunt of his day, an art expert who advised the royal family and was employed by the security services. Some people see Boronis as a heroic figure whose actions during the war had gone largely unnoticed and without his contribution an invasion of Britain in 1941 would have been more likely. This gave us time to buy, uh, buy time and to prepare against a German invasion. He was active in encouraging Hess to fly to Scotland on his peace mission. Others say that Boronis was being used in a plot against Churchill, Churchill government, and his first loyalty was to his native Finland, who wanted a peace deal between Britain and the Nazis. The plot that had to be aborted when Hess crashed in the wrong part of Scotland. Boronis had a sad ending. In the freezing winter of 1946-47, he was sectioned under the Lunacy Act. He was described as depressed, gloomy, pessimistic and apprehensive, suspicious of all those around him. It was also suggested that he was helped on his way when he died in September 1948 in a nursing home near Salisbury. In July 1943, the Polish leader, Skiskorski and Kazile were killed in a liberator that crashed into the sea 46 seconds after takeoff from Gibraltar when the controls were said to have jammed. This was a severe setback for Poland as their top military leaders were also killed in the crash. Skiskorsi had been in a row with Stalin and his own countrymen about revelations released by the Nazis that they had proof about the Soviet Soviets executing perhaps 22,000 Polish soldiers in the well-known Katlin massacre. The Nazis released the information about Katlin to weaken the alliance between Britain, the USSR and the exiled Polish government. Stalin had tried to blame Germany for the massacre and accused Skoskorsi of being a Nazi collaborator. There was also Skoskorsi's 
involvement in the Hess flight as he made great efforts to get back from Scotland, to get to Scotland from America when he heard that Hess was on his way. The majority of the exiled Polish forces were based in Scotland and it has been suggested that the Polish troops could have been used as agitators to support the appeasement movement. This may have given the reason for the British security services to make a move against Skorsky and his military chiefs. A plane accident would solve that problem. However, by 1943, any threat from Skorsky would have passed. Uh, so it doesn't really make sense that the security services would have killed him. Some still maintain that Skorsky's plane was tampered with, but all the subsequent inquiries all suggest that it was an accident. Air travel was risky during wartime, which of course made it a good excuse to if you wanted to get rid of somebody. So I suppose there should be some type of conclusion regarding the Hess flight. The official story about Hess was that he acted impulsively to try to win back Hitler's favour by trying to take Britain out of the war so Germany could concentrate on invading the USSR. Also, of course, that Hess was delusional. The flight to Scotland, though, was well planned and seems likely that there was a conspiracy planned by the British appeasers and it's plausible that, with the right influential support, Churchill could have been forced from office if there was a groundswell for peace after the terms were announced. However, the plans unravelled when Hess crash-landed and those involved in the subterfuge realised it wasn't going to work. For what it's worth, I feel that Hitler knew about Hess's planned trip May, it may have worked, and Hitler could have claimed the success. If the plot failed, he could deny that he had anything to do with it. What is surprising is I've consulted many books about Adolf Hitler and the Hess flight, and the Hess flight is hardly mentioned. Just a, panel, a paragraph or two if you're lucky. The British security services would have wanted to suppress any information on the Hess flight, as it made many in the British establishment and the royal family, and probably the security services themselves, look guilty as defeatists and collaborators. They would have thought the best option would be to lock up Hess, call him a madman and throw away the key. Anyhow, so ends the Hess enigma. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd like to thank Damselfly for providing the background music. Until next time, I'll say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.